Hi, I'm Cop Thorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled Seeing the Unity, the Three Stages. The content is adapted from Chapter 7 of my book, Toward Wisdom. This podcast episode and two that will follow deal with loosening our identification as separate independent personal selves and deepening our sense of oneness. First of all, why would we bother to do this? Would anything really be gained? Let's try to imagine what it would be like. Imagine for a moment that in every human mind the primal sense of identity did become identified with the ground of being. From that perspective, the unitive perspective, the perspective of being, how would things appear? For one thing, it would be clear that awareness simultaneously watches countless shows. It would be clear that I, we, awareness watches these shows through billions and billions of sensory portholes. Part of the problem before was that the right hand never knew what the left was doing. Because occurrences of awareness seemed isolated and separate to human senses, the awareness at each window was fooled into thinking that it belonged to that window and that window alone. It was fooled into thinking that it was separate from all other appearances of awareness. Now, from the perspective of being, of oneness, it's clear that the awareness at each window is just another appearance of being, the one. It's clear that all awareness, like all energy, is one in its intrinsic nature. It's clear that awareness is a universal, not a particular. It's clear that awareness is an aspect of the underlying medium and not permanently attached or bound to any particular message. With a sense of identity firmly attached to being, death would be seen as just another aspect of the universe's constantly changing informational flux, not anything to fear. Yes, human bodies do eventually stop functioning. Yes, individual portholes do eventually go dark. Some windows go, new ones come. But from being's vantage point, it would no longer be the big deal it was when awareness identified with the window. Back then, it was the biggest of deals. The loss of one window, when the sense of identity was attached to that window, appeared to mean total annihilation. Dropping identification with a particular body-mind would transform our whole outlook. In letting go of the particular, we would become free to see that we are everywhere in every being. Shedding existing bodies and picking up new ones would seem as natural and right as the human system shedding of 8,000 stomach cells per second and the growing of 8,000 new ones. By becoming unattached to any one window, we would come to know intuitively, deeply, that we look through them all. It would also be clear that we will continue to look and act forevermore in ever-changing, ever-new ways. As Joseph Campbell put it, quote, those who know not only that the everlasting lives in them, but that what they and all things really are is the everlasting, dwell in the groves of the wish-fulfilling trees, 
drink the brew of immortality, and listen everywhere to the unheard music of eternal concord. These are the immortals. Unquote. Identification with being would bring about other changes too. Because the perspective after re-identification is long-term and holistic, war and the ecological rape of the planet would become absurd non-possibilities. The idea of localized short-term gain would lose its former meaning. Could centers of activity and awareness who look at the entire earth and universe as their body intentionally damage it? If you had being's perspective, your concern would be the long-term well-being of the whole process. Your aim would be to actualize your highest values. Given that, you treat with utmost care and respect those rare special places in the universe, like Earth, where conditions are favorable for that. Alan Watts apparently felt that this sort of shift in perspective is the only hope for those people with a control-the-environment outlook, the only hope for the man, quote, saddled with the job of bending the world to his will, unquote. Watts said, No amount of preaching and moralizing will tame the type of man so defined, for the hypnotic hallucination of himself as something separate from the world renders him incapable of seeing that life is a system of geological and biological cooperation. End quote. However appropriate identification as a person might have been in the era of chance-enabled evolution, in this new era of mind-enabled evolution, it no longer is. Today, a shift to the perspective of being appears not only appropriate, but necessary. Pragmatically, widespread identification with being would solve the most serious problems of person and world. In the first stage of the re-identification process, we come to see all this conceptually, intellectually. We see that shifting from a perspective of separateness to a perspective of oneness makes rational sense. This is just the first step, however. We need to acquire the perspective of oneness not just as a defensible intellectual position, but as a direct, personal, deeply felt experience. The overall transition seems to divide itself into three progressively deeper levels or degrees of re-identification, which I'll call intellectual, intuitive, and experiential. To live in a totally re-identified way, we need to move from the first through the second to the third. Fortunately, if our intellect comes to see the appropriateness of this identification, it may prod us to head deeper. It may motivate us to take those additional steps that must be taken if we are going to experience oneness intuitively and experientially. We face a very unbalanced situation when we attempt a gestalt flip from our ordinary object-oriented view to the unitive or self-realized view. As we've seen, many things work together to keep us solidly locked into the ordinary way of mentally ordering the world around us. We can, however, learn to let go of the person-centered view if we're earnest enough. Our best hope of doing it, of making the flip and re-identifying, 
is to do things that weaken identification with body and with mind contents and do other things that strengthen identification with being and the whole. This is what we attempt in the intuitive stage of the re-identification process. For most of my life, I thought that religion and spirituality were the same thing. In my late teens, I rejected organized religion, and because I equated the two, I also turned my back on spirituality. At about age 40, I looked into the matter again. When I did, I saw that they weren't the same at all. Although the two had historically been linked, spirituality was independent of religion, and had always been there first. I learned that each of the world's great spiritual traditions had several different modes of participation. Three of these predominated. I tagged them mainstream religion, fundamentalism, and personal spirituality. I concluded that in mainstream religion, involvement was mostly intellectual and devotional. This was a religion at the level of popular participation, the go-to-church level. Participants sought truth through an intermediary or intercessor, a priest or minister, who repeated and interpreted ancient teachings. Another feature of mainstream religion was that the religion's spiritual founder was revered, sometimes to the point of worship and deification. One advantage of this mainstream approach was that it didn't require a lot of time. One disadvantage was that the knowledge gained was mostly intellectual, second-hand knowledge. Often, people were not able to run their lives by it. The mainstream mode was, for most people, superficial. The mode of fundamentalism was similar to the mainstream mode, but less intellectual. Involvement tended to be experiential and emotional. For anyone immersed in science, however, there was a big problem. In fundamentalism, ancient religious texts were interpreted literally, and some of these teachings clashed with what was accepted as real and true by science and the culture at large. This resulted in a kind of cognitive dissonance, a mental discomfort. The individual was told to resolve this by having faith in the literal teachings, by believing them completely, and by denying the truth of the scientific cultural view. What got lost if you took this approach was openness to other viewpoints and openness to changing your own. Fundamentalism seemed incompatible with an open, reality-seeking attitude, one in which you held your working hypotheses lightly and tentatively. The third mode was the one that interested me. It was the mode of the founders of these spiritual traditions, the mode of first-hand, direct investigation. It is also a mode that is alive and well today. I discovered that each of the great spiritual traditions had, and to some extent still has, its mystical branch devoted to personal exploration. In the early centuries of Christianity, there were Gnostic sects involved with direct transcendent knowing. And during the Middle Ages, there were Christian mystics who sought the direct experience of truth. Even today, there are contemplative orders of Christian nuns and monks. Quakers, too, have their first-hand approach, sitting silently, attempting to sense the light within. In Judaism, it's Kabbalah. In Islam, it's Sufism. Hinduism has Vedanta, 
and its many yogas, and there are direct participation practices in Zen, Tibetan, and Theravadan Buddhism. In this third mode, the mode of personal investigation and discovery, the objective is to see through the veil of everyday reality to a deeper underlying reality, a reality of oneness. Each tradition offers a set of techniques to help the individual accomplish this. There are Hindu mantra and I am meditations, Buddhist breath meditation, the riddle-like koans of Zen, the mind-twisting stories of the Sufis, and the sweat lodges of native North Americans. I saw that in these direct practices the object was to find out for yourself. You didn't have to take anyone's word for anything. You needed no intermediaries, and the only faith required was enough to try the practice for a while. Also, this approach actively encouraged open-mindedness and a reality-seeking attitude. The ancients spoke of spirit. I'm pretty sure that the reality behind their term spirit is the same reality that lies behind my term energy awareness. Spirit or energy awareness is the root, heart, foundation, and source of all physical and mental vitality. It is the ground of life, function, and perception. And just as I have come to see spirit in contemporary terms, I also see spiritual practices in contemporary terms. Legitimate spiritual practices are really psychological practices. Their aim is to allow human beings to understand the game of existence more clearly, to help them reach the point, psychologically, where they see holistically and adopt holistic ways of acting in the world. Personal spirituality's lone negative seems to be the time and effort required. An hour each Sunday isn't going to do it. Particularly helpful in the intuitive stage of the re-identification process are practices that help loosen identification with the personal self and strengthen identification with the all or the one. That kind of practice regime shifts the balance of mental influences, increasing the likelihood that a temporary gestalt flip of intuitive recognition or re-identification will occur. There are other names for this kind of event. Some have called it self-realization, others enlightenment or liberation. Whatever we call it, the person experiences a shift of perspective that allows the underlying unity to be seen in a thoroughly convincing, intuitive way. In some cases, the seeing is so deep that a temporary shift of identity occurs and being is directly experienced as one's universal self. Unfortunately, the presence of the normal ego plus other influences prevent this gestalt flip from occurring easily. Gut-level identification with being requires gut-level disidentification with the small s self. Unwilling to let go, to give up, to, quote, die, unquote, the intellect tenaciously clings to the old self-delusion. As we will see, loosening that tenacious hold involves insight, acceptance, and abandonment rather than any kind of seeking and finding. It is, after all, simply a matter of seeing clearly what already is. In the final experiential stage of deepening, we move from flashes of insight about oneness, 
or short visits there to setting up residence. If you're familiar with those ambiguous figure ground pictures in the psychology books, the reversible ones, you know that you can't always flip with equal ease between the two visual possibilities. This is often the case when you first encounter a new figure, and even more so if you're not told in advance that there are two ways of perceiving it. The stairway cornice figure may look stubbornly like a stairway, for instance. Or you may see only the old woman in the old woman-young woman picture, if no one tells you about the young woman possibility. You soon learn, however, that once you've seen the less obvious possibility, it's easier to see it the next time. And if you practice switching back and forth from one perceptual gestalt to the other, switching usually becomes easy, even though you had trouble at first. That is analogous to what happens in the experiential stage of re-identification. After the first re-identification experience, you continue your disidentification re-identification practice. Then slowly, gradually, the likelihood of flips into the new mental space increases. Eventually, some degree of control over the process develops. A few people have reached the point where they experience oneness permanently. One of these was Vedanta's teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. In the passage that follows, recorded some 40 years after his first Gestalt flip, he shares his view of things. Quote, I see as you see, hear as you hear, taste as you taste, eat as you eat. I also feel thirst and hunger and expect my food to be served on time. When starved or sick, my mind and body go weak. All this I perceive quite clearly, but somehow I'm not in it. I feel myself as if floating over it, aloof and detached. Not even aloof and detached. There is aloofness and detachment as there is thirst and hunger. There is also the awareness of it all and sense of immense distance, as if the body and the mind and all that happens to them were somewhere far out on the horizon. I am like a cinema screen, clear and empty. The pictures pass over it and disappear, leaving it as clear and empty as before. In no way is the screen affected by the pictures, nor are the pictures affected by the screen. The screen intercepts and reflects the pictures. It does not shape them. It has nothing to do with the roles of film. They are, as they are, lumps of destiny. But not my destiny. The destinies of the people on the screen. That's the end quote. Before such a state arises permanently or can be attained at will, it happens in discrete episodes. Several of these are described in William Buck's turn-of-the-century book, Cosmic Consciousness. The following are more recent accounts. The first was written down during an hour-long episode of identification. The second, immediately after a three-hour episode. The feeling of I and me is the same as it always was. That feeling no longer seems trapped within the body. There is space, detachment. The I or me watches the body go through its motions, washing the dishes one by one. The body is perceived as a detached machine, a sophisticated robot performing duties in accordance with prior programming. 
being viewed from somewhere apart by me. I am aware of its mental workings too. It's like having a readout attached to the robot's biocomputer. The robot itself doesn't need the readout. It gets its instructions straight from the computer. Grasp the dish, lift the dish, place the dish, etc. It's just that I get to peek at the robot's mental life like a voyeur. I get to see some functions of its biocomputer. I saw the intention to do the dishes, for instance, and before that, the desire to eat lunch. And concerning the second episode, I moved into an unfamiliar mental state. It was as though a cloak of concentration and mental stillness had descended on me. It was not at all like my usual distraction-prone state in which part of me would want to go off fantasizing about the future, part would want to linger in the past, and part would search for that elusive knife-edged ridge called the present. It was as though that narrow ridge had opened up wide and provided me with a stable place in the present moment on which to stand. The world looked the same, but it was here, now. All those moving, searching parts of me had come back together. I was in the timeless present moment. Psychological time stood still. Also, everything I perceived was perfectly acceptable. The present moment was perfectly okay, just as it was. There was nothing worth grasping, nothing that needed pushing away, and nothing too subtle to be interesting. It was a totally satisfying place to be. I also had a strong sense of oneness, a sense that everything around me, trees, sky, ground, was also me. I thought, I'm surrounded by my universal body. It's all part of the big me. With 40 years of practice and not many demands put on the problem-solving rational mind, it should be possible to stay in the re-identified mental space continuously as Nisargadatta apparently did. For active Western people, however, the optimum is probably to return automatically to the re-identified space after each excursion into intellectual activity. Then, re-identification rather than fantasy or memory becomes the natural resting place for attention, our new mental neutral. We humans appear to be the first creatures on earth with any hope of understanding our existential situation. We're on the ragged edge. We have sophisticated scientific instruments with which to explore the cosmic message, but we may not be much better off than the dolphins and the whales when it comes to realizing our true self as cosmic medium. Like the minds of other animals, our minds are still rooted in reactive emotion. And we still identify the primal sense that I exist with the body-mind. It's possible for a human being to make the gestalt flip of re-identification, but for most people, it's not trivially easy. Identifying with being involves seeing through or seeing past the space-time frame of reference, that frame of relativity and difference that is information's home. It involves finding a new frame of reference, an absolute frame, isness, identity, oneness. Perhaps the ocean wave metaphor can help. Picture the broad Atlantic Ocean in two waves, 
one near the coast of England, the other near the coast of Nova Scotia. With our usual space-time frame of reference, we visualize two separate things or events. Off the coast of England is one wave of a certain size and shape, occurring at certain coordinates of latitude and longitude at a certain instant of time. 2,500 miles away at another instant of time and other coordinates is a wave of a different size and shape. We can picture each wave mentally, and if we had all the numbers, we could describe the two separate things or events in great detail using terms of time and space. Waves are oceans seen from the space-time frame of reference. But there is another frame of reference or point of view, that of ocean itself. From the ocean's perspective, there is only ocean, the oneness of ocean. Waves are not separate things, they are ocean. Their shape and location and timing are all unimportant within the second frame of reference. Their identity as ocean is the important thing here. From the space-time point of view, being can be intuited as the medium that is waved or formed or patterned by information. But from its own point of view, being, like ocean, is timeless and placeless. It just is a ubiquitous oneness. We are that being. And by learning to let go of the space-time frame of reference, that sometimes pernicious point of view which obscures oneness with the illusion of thingness, it is possible to discover our own deeper identity and experience the world from the perspective of oneness. Like the ocean, we are everywhere. We are the awareness that washes the show in every mind, the energy that enables every action, and the love that envelops it all. That ends the Wisdom Page podcast episode titled Seeing the Unity, the Three Stages from Chapter 7 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom Page. It's at www.cop.com I'll spell that out www.cop.com. Bye for now.